What's up, team? Hey, I'm really fired up about this show. Uh, I got to tell you, I've been waiting to do this for a long time, really since the last incredible show I did with Dr. Chris Free uh, from the University of Hawaii, also from the Synchrony Program, uh, which is run out of Methodist Hospital in Houston, uh, and a very close personal friend, and as well as my psychologist. This is a guy that has uh, treated... Uh, well over 50 operators uh, from every different unit, from every different level, uh, as well as the intelligence world. And if you paid attention to our first show, where we really began to scratch the surface on a concept that everybody that's ever served in special operations should come to understand and, and appreciate and know. And those of us who are battling with uh, a lot of this stuff, uh, we have come to know it intimately well. And finally, uh, we, f we finally have a term for it that will, we believe, Chris and I believe, will begin to really uh, enable all healthcare providers, all, 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 all treatment facilities, all psychologists, uh, doctors, orthopedics, uh, HBOT specialists, you name it, anybody that is dedicated towards uh, serving and helping uh, operators, special operations force members who are battling with a whole slew of, of issues and, and challenges, man, this show is for you. Now, what uh, Chris and I are going to do is we're going to cover this incredible paper that he recently published along with uh, Dr. Alok Madan, uh, J. Christopher Fowler, uh, Sasha Stromberg, Major Bradshaw, Karen Kelly, Benjamin Weinstein, Morgan Luttrell, Summer G. Danner, and Deborah C. Bidell. Um, and it, what it's called is Operator Syndrome, a unique constellation of medical and behavioral health care needs for military special operations forces. Now, this paper was posted a few weeks ago and has already been uh, seen by over 8,000 people around the country. And it's uh, my duty not only as a participant in, in helping uh, Chris come up and, and deliver this paper effectively, but also my duty as a, a member of uh, on the uh, consultants board of the Synchrony program, really to bring this issue to light, to really shine, uh, um, to help people see what operator syndrome is exactly and how it breaks down in order to better serve all those, all my brothers and sisters out there that are struggling with these different types of medical and behavioral health uh, issues. So please, I hope you pay close attention. Uh, listen closely to uh, as we break down this this paper. And, and for all my, my brothers and sisters struggling, you know, this one's for you. I love you a ton. Thank you. My brother. What's hey. going on, buddy? My man, how are you doing today? I, I am above dirt and nobody is shooting at me. And I have one of my favorite people in the whole wide world on, on the show with me. And so uh, my life is pretty awesome right now. How about you? I'm glorious. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me well, again. Well, I, as you know, the response we got from our, our last show uh, was pretty substantial. Uh, I think we're now up to something like 20,000 downloads on it. And, and uh, I, you, and, you and I both know it was spread all across uh, 
the community and, and out and amongst other communities within the special operations world, the intelligence world. So, you know, I, I think the feedback that I got was, hey, we want to know more about what operator syndrome is. And so, man, here we go. All right. Now, you just recently wrote this beautiful paper along with uh, several other folks, um, and it's called Operator Syndrome, a unique constellation of medical and behavioral health care needs for military special operations forces. First off, why don't you tell our listeners why you wrote it, where it came from, and what you hope to accomplish with it? Well, so, so as you know, Dave, I'm a, I'm a clinical psychologist and I do clinical work, but I'm also, I've also spent 25, 30 years doing research with veterans and military personnel. So everything I do, I always think about, it's not just how can I help the man in front of me or the woman in front of me, but how can I gather information and share that with the broader community so that to, to be able to help more people. And so this paper really is something that's been in the works for six or seven years, did not start as the intent of, hey, let's go write a cool paper. This was about <laughs> a year or two into, the, into some activities going, you know what, we're seeing something here that's unusual, unexpected. Why do these guys who are 35, 40 years old have low testosterone? You know, they, they're, they're big, strong, tough guys. You don't expect that. Why do, they have, why do they have sleep apnea? That's weird. It's unexpected. So in the course of, of seeing this pattern over and over and over again, started having conversations with colleagues and with some of the folks that are listed as co-authors here and, and many folks who aren't listed as co-authors, partly because of their military service connections not being able to be a part of this and realized, you know, we need, to, we need to put this out there. And so a lot of this just came about as my, my effort to understand what I was seeing, conversations with you about, you know, about what you were aware of over and over and over again among your friends and comrades. And originally I, I put together just like a little white paper for myself that I started sharing with the guys and the gals that I was talking with. And in the course of doing that, got a lot of feedback. And then it was like, you know what? This, this is a paper. This is, a, this is something we need to share with the world. Let's get this out there. So this paper, I mean, it's in a scientific journal. And I'm a scientist. I would describe the methodology of this paper as very qualitative. And I mean, it's an observational study. Uh, and it's a study of something that I've seen, just a pattern. I've seen it over and over and over again in the special operation community. And I've never seen it anywhere else. It really is kind of the anomaly. And what's, what's interesting is, you know, if you, everybody's so mainly focused right now on, on PTSD, right? And this dates back all the way back, you know, to, you know, Homer and the Iliad and, and the descriptive terms that have been around in terms of battle exhaustion, shell shock, soldier's heart, battle fatigue, war neurosis, right? But I think what's really unique about now and what we're seeing is that the combination of, of, of where our society has evolved to, right, uh, and then you mesh that with the intense immersive 
selection process of our core training and then the extensive nature of combat over the last 19 years, you're really getting this, this, this pretty substantial, you know, dynamic uh, multitude of, of, of issues that are compiling on these. I love the, the term you had in there, cascading, right, uh, on, on the individual to really affect what you call the allostatic load. Um, how, how wh- I mean, when did, and, and just so everybody knows, you know, I've been working with Chris for years on, on my stuff. I've, 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 I've pushed multiple friends to him. Um, you know, Chris, why don't you talk a little bit about when you started first working with special operations guys from, you know, a, a, a clinical or just, you know, a pro bono perspective. And when you started to see these signs and symptoms become to really begin to elevate the, your awareness of these patterns. Yeah, I mean, it was probably about a decade ago, and it was just probably a gradual movement, you know, one, one or two guys here and there, and then, you know, snowballed. That's actually a scientific term. Snowball. Uh, you talk to one guy, and they send you somebody else, and then they send you two people, and you know it, it rolls from there. Um, and so that's been kind of my experience. Um, this paper itself was written probably a year ago. It just takes a while to get you know out. And what's what's sort of not really represented in this in this paper is is that there there's probably now 60, 70 um, people I've I've talked with intimately on multiple occasions. Um, but over and above that, I've also had extensive conversations with care providers, psychologists, internal medicine doctors, physical therapists, speech pathologists, psychiatrists, social workers who work inside naval special warfare, who are stationed at Fort Bragg and around, around the country at other Army bases. Um, I've talked with a small number of VA um, care providers around the country. In fact, after our last podcast, I got a call from a surgeon at the VA, at a VA out in the, in the mountain time zone, who, who was saying to me, she, she was expressing gratitude. She said, this makes sense. This explains what she's been seeing. Now, she said she's a surgeon who does breast reduction surgeries on veterans. And she said, that's one of the unfortunate results of having Year, years of low testosterone is breast enlargement in men. Wow. And she said what she seen is like the VA won't treat it. The VA doesn't even want to acknowledge or evaluate it for the most part. Wow. And so she says, I've got these guys in my office who are crying, you know, about, about the loss of what they perceive the loss of their manhood. And it's just heartbreaking. And she said, my, she said when she listened to our first podcast, she just had tears in her eyes. And she shared that with every one of those guys. I sent her this paper over the week, weekend, and she, last weekend, and she responded back, she's going to share it with every one of her patients now that she's wow. seeing in that context, and share it back to the urologist primary care docs around at her VA. Well, so, I mean, it's really picking up steam. I mean, now, I think what's so amazing about what's happening, and, and as, as you and I have been discussing for years now, is, is everybody wants somehow uh, things to be in this nice, you know, concise package, right? This, we want it, we want the easiest way to digest information. PTSD. Yeah. PTSD yeah. is the, is the catchphrase that just kind of gets 
hung on everybody who goes into a VA clinic with any kind of psychological problem yep. if they have combat experience. And it's just, and, it, and the inadequacies of those diagnoses as per, and, and you know, you and I have chatted extensively about my, about my experience in the VA and the four years it took to be uh, effectively evaluated. And, you know, and I, and I always like to short, share my first, you know, my first foray, my first, you know, real series of visits with doctors. I met about eight doctors and six of which had never even heard or knew what a Navy SEAL was, much yeah. less trying yeah. to understand the totality of, of what it means to go through a breacher's course or what it means to carry a boat on your head for five straight days. So right, let's start with that. Let's, 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 let's talk a little bit about what's happened over the last 20 years in, in terms of the historical perspective and then in terms of what that means for the individual operators. Perfect. I don't think, I don't think people understand this. I don't think your average a civilian, your average doctor, your average psychologist, even folks in the VA don't understand how the difference of what our special operation forces have done for the last 20 years. Um, what I what I have seen and, and what I know is there are there are there are people who have spent 15 years, 20 years at war. Straight. We have not had that in our straight. Yeah, I mean. There are evolution, training evolutions that are done stateside, obviously, but even those are intense. And, it, and all of that is about prepping for the next combat mission. And so that, right there, you have something that nobody understands. The other thing you've got is a, is a failure to understand the intensity of the training. And I've used, in my paper, I use the term allostatic load. And let me, let me define that because it, it's pertinent right here. And it's it's a it's generally a, a concept. Allostatic load is a concept. It's not a specific, you know, number or metric. It's a it's a concept that says all of the burden on the body, and the brain, and the health, and the psyche, and the spirit, all of that coming together. And so, when we think about the training for special operations, let's let's hold off on combat. How many how many charges do you do you um, do you blow in in a breacher course? Oh my God! It's it, I mean the breacher course I went to is a little over two and a half weeks long. We did you know I don't even know we did like four days of of door breaches, shotgun breaches, and then we started in doing bigger, more substantial breaching charges. So. I mean, you could be exposed or within the vicinity of, I don't know, 100, 200 different breaches from all the different guys going through it. So right there, if you stop right there, you've got a, a massive dose of blast wave exposure that is so far beyond anything that typical conventional forces and certainly civilians will ever experience cumulative in their entire life. And when we get into the TBI section, we can talk about the difference between impact forces that cause concussions and the effects of blast wave exposure, which are a shearing force that goes through the soft tissue of the body. So, you know, there's different kinds of damage occurring here. So even firing a rifle or a handgun has a small dose that contributes. How many well, times if you talking, and if you're talking about heavy caliber weapons, I mean, I remember yeah. in my first platoon, I, Top I, rockets. 
when we would do IADs or immediate action drills, I would be sandwiched between two 60, you know, M60 machine guns, right? And, and that, exactly. and, and over the course of a nine, 10 hour period, these guys are shooting four to 7,000 rounds per shooter. And I'm right in the middle of that. Yeah. It's incredible. How many trigger pulls in your career? Oh, it's, it's impossible. What's the average? Over a million. I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, there's Say that certain, again. over a million. Say that guys, again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, guys that are in the teams for 20 plus year, way over a million uh, uh, rounds shooting by far. Yeah. I mean, it's insane. The amount, so, the amount of So let all of this sink in for a minute and then think about what most other people have. I mean, even somebody who's a recreational shooter or a hunter, um, probably not over several thousand unless they're really avid. Um, so we're talking about a dose here that's just incredible. And then you add on to that the running, the marching, the, the rucking, the jumping, the rappelling, the, you know, the, the, the jumps out of airplanes, the, um, the running with a boat on top of your head, uh, the, the time spent underwater. You know, diving is not a, it's not a simple, easy thing on the brain or the body either. So we're talking about just an incredible dose of, of um, wear and tear much on every part and of your also and, yeah. and the one that i i think is 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 really a profound effect is 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 the emotional load that you take and that you have to endure as well because you know you know no other place in life is the peer evaluation and the peer pressure of and then also the emotional um requirements in order to live in a place of that moral ambiguity of that drive to want to go to war and if you don't display that if you don't have that then you risk the potentiality of being ostracized from this elite culture that you've literally put your life on the line to try and be a part of yep yep all right Let, let's let's i just want to start out with this section, I, before we jump into the paper, I just want to read, and this is in the results section, and let me just read this real, real fast. We identified a consistent pattern of healthcare difficulties within the Special Operations Forces community that we and other Special Operations Force healthcare providers have termed, in quotations, operator syndrome. This includes interrelated health and functional impairments, including traumatic brain injury effects, endocrine dysfunction, sleep disturbance, obstructive sleep apnea, chronic joint and back pain, orthopedic problems and headaches, substance abuse, depression and suicide, anger, worry, rumination, and stress reactivity, marital, family, and community dysfunction, problems with sexual health and intimacy, or being on guard or hypervigilant, memory, concentration, and cognitive impairments, vestibular and vision impairments, challenges of the transition from military to civilian life, and common existential issues. I love how you guys threw in that last little sprinkling of, of existential issues. Thank you for, for adding that one in there. I'm glad you put that in. <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a pretty extensive list, Chris. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's a lot. It's a lot. And there's probably more things in there that we, we didn't 
think of. Some, some, some folks have recently pointed out to me the heavy metal exposure is a significant concern. The dietary, you know, eating what? weird food and, 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 you know, like those, I don't know what kind of uh, package processed foods you guys carried, but that, that's something that some people have wondered well, you've about. You've got the burn pits, you've got, I mean, just, just to go back to the heavy metals thing, man, you know, the, the, we, I remember my first platoon, there was some concerns about lead exposure and we wore these little uh, lead detectors, we call them fart sniffers, right? And they, and they were annoying as hell, but we had to wear them for a whole uh, three weeks up at Camp Pendleton at the kill house up there. And remember we'd put these and we'd get these test people that would come in and they would say, this is more lead exposure than anybody we've tested. And because if you're in this contained house, you're shooting hundreds, if not thousands of rounds a day in this house, and you're just breathing this stuff in. And that was just one three week period. And now you put in a guy that's been in 20 plus years and the exposure, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a, a phenomenon that more of us don't have much more significant issues than, 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 than I guess is, is being uh, the data that's available. Right. And then let me add one other thing, which I didn't think about when I was writing this paper, but it's been something that's been on my mind the last few weeks. Most humans, most people have a, have a point at which they tap out. They say, no mas, I'm done. I gotta, I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta step away. I'm hurting. What I've seen and thought about is, is that guys from the operator, special operator community don't tap out. Doesn't matter how bad they're hurting, how, what's broken, what's not working. They push through all that pain and they keep going. And, you know, pain is a signal. Pain is something that tell, is supposed to be there to tell us, hey, take your hand off the stove. Your hand is getting burned because the <laughs> stove is on. You know, and you go, whoa, take my, take my hand away. And that protects the tissue on your hand. Um, and special operation guys have, are, are known for pushing through that pain. Oh, and so it, the in damage, our world, damage that accumulates from that. Well, in our, our world, from day one, from the first, but not even, not even the day one where you enter the program, where you're actually going through that, that uh, cognitive rehabilitation, let's call it. <laughs> you're, even before that, when you're the kid and you're reading the books or you're watching the movies, you're watching Lone Survivor, American Sniper, you're watching, you're reading all the books, you're reading Fearless, the Adam Brown story, and Adam loses an eye and still completes sniper school. Adam has his, his fingers ripped off his hand, and he still goes through green team and goes over to dev group, right? And these stories, they're not – these are fantastic stories for sure, but how many guys have you talked to from across the community that all have these intense stories where they're not going to allow those signals, those very – clear-cut signals that are designed to reduce the allostatic load on us and all these capacities, and you just blow them off because you don't yeah. want to be evaluated as weak in any capacity. Right, right. Well, so the, the, one of the things that when I, when I got into this, you know, and, and I really appreciated the description, right? The nature of service includes years away from spouses and family, physical danger, death of friends and comrades and training and combat, combat and training injuries, acute and chronic, 
both including concussive impact injuries, blast wave exposure, and the cause traumatic brain injuries, and the existential and psychological damage involved as well, too. I, I really appreciated that section and, and why you put that in there. Because, you know, it, you know I, I, think, I think when people see the other things and you start to, you start to really hear the, the extensive nature of all the issues, you know, it, people are starting to go, whoa, so this isn't just, this isn't just a combat thing. This isn't just happening when you're downrange. The majority of this is happening in your training cycles, your workups and the perpetual nature of, of, of right. just th that you train like you fight. And I think that's a powerful tool for you guys in this. Yep. Agree. Now, what's the saying? You, you can bleed in war or you can bleed in training. Hundred percent, and 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 that's and been that, the case in in our in our communities as far back as as you know some type of special units were involved. You know, counter guerrilla units of of the Civil War, you know, the special uh, reconnaissance teams of of World War One, and then certainly in World War Two, the OSS units, all these other the Rangers, all these really unique units that were out there in this you know, perpetual state of hypervigilance and exposure to all these very damaging things. Now, the next thing I, I just, what I'd like to do now, Chris, if we could, is let's just start out with the first thing that you guys have listed. And, and if you could just talk a little bit about uh, the effects of traumatic brain injury and what you guys have seen and what you've heard from this, this paper. Sure. So, um, and, and just to, at the outset, just to say the order of these components, these health components is intentional. So in, in my view, we, we really need to start with the traumatic brain injury. And the word that effects are in there is because it's not just the traumatic brain injury alone, it's the effects, it's the cascade of, of what comes from that. So many of the things that are down the list on this, on this, um, in this paper are partial or major effects from the TBI. We don't understand TBI very well. We don't. We, we have the concept of concussions. We've had that for a long time. So that's an impact force. We understand that impact force. So right? Yeah, football players, people throwing off a horse, boxers, rugby players, soccer players heading the ball. And that's um, the CTE stuff, right? Automobile accidents. Well, that can lead to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, which is really a new discovery. I mean, really the last 10 years or so that that's been understood, and we still don't understand it very well. And the only way we can truly diagnose that is at post-mortem. So we can look for signs and cues when somebody's alive, but we can't know for sure until after they're dead and do an autopsy on the brain. When you go, when a, when a veteran goes into the VA and says, oh, I, I have a TBI, I think I have a TBI or I think I had a TBI. One of the primary questions that the VA asks and that most doctors ask is, oh, well, how many times have you been knocked unconscious? Okay, right there, let's pause right there. How many times have I been knocked unconscious? Well, we're talking about guys that were athletes in high school. So usually oftentimes there's one or two or three there. Then there's maybe one or two times in training, one or two times in, in combat. 
Okay, so let's call it four, five, six, ten. I don't know. Um, but really unconscious? Like how many times have you had your bell rung, but not unconscious? That's another number. How many times? How, and then they say, how long were you unconscious? I don't know. I was unconscious. How can I know how long I was unconscious? Maybe somebody else timed it. But usually when those things happen, other, other people are busy and preoccupied themselves. So nobody's clicking a stopwatch. Now we go to the blast wave exposure, different type of brain injury. And that's, what, that's what's not yet been brought into our medical understanding in a, in a, in a largely. The VA doesn't really, has not yet really understood the effect of blast wave exposure. And in part because the special operations group are a relatively small percentage of all the veterans. So, so it's a small group of people that have 98% of the blast wave exposure. Right. So maybe, 90, maybe 99%. In the year 2016, uh, this amazing pathologist in Bethesda, a guy named Daniel Pearl and his team were looking at brains of, of men who had been operators and who were, were dead, obviously, and had been noted to have problems with cognitive functioning, depression, just personality changes. And he did a lot of different things. And then what he eventually found was there was a different type of brain damage. He wasn't finding CTE in these guys. He, was, he found something else that's now been named in his 2016 paper, interface astral glial scarring. And his hypothesis, which makes a lot of sense to me, is this is a, this is a scarring caused by the shearing effect of, of blast waves going through the brain. Now, remember, it's also going through all the other muscles in the body, the lungs, the organs, everything. So we don't even know what it's, you know, what it's doing to the whole system. So right there, we've got two types of, of brain damage that are occurring. Okay, so what, what does that mean? We don't know. We don't really know. We know guys show cognitive deficits, like they don't think clearly, their memory is impaired, their concentration, their ability to focus is disrupted. Um, if you do IQ tests, the IQ gets a little bit lower uh, as measured in people with, with TBI effects. Um, it seems some of the, sometimes that seems to rebound, sometimes it seems to get better over time, um, but we don't really understand what or why. Uh, headaches are common problem and that could probably be from a lot from other things that could be from physical injuries to the neck and back um, but you know pretty good reason to think that that's a TBI mm -hmm. effect as well so so and what's interesting, there what's interesting is yeah sorry to cut you off there but when, when as you're sitting there talking about all the potentiality I'm just going through in my mind all the different phases of training right you know, whether I'm, we're doing field expedient claymores and we're sitting, you know, 16 meters behind those and clacking off 16 of those, bam, 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 right? Or we're in the housework and we're, or, or, or you know, we're doing flashbang appreciation where, you know, all the new guys are in one room and every, all the other senior operators are throwing 10 flashbangs in the room so we understand what it does, you know, and, 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 and yeah. just, Things like that every single day or, or just doing, you know, doing uh, our combatives training and getting drilled in the head by, you know, you're the new guy, so you're going to stand in the box, you know, 
for through every dude to feel what every dude's strength is. And you're getting pounded in the head by these guys that are six, six and you know, two forty, and you're taking a full blown elbow, even though you've got the padding on and you're still getting your bell rung. And it's just all the time. It's just, it's a, it's a natural component. So you just learn to kind of, Hey, this is part of it. I just got to live with it. And, and I, and it just, it, you, as, as you start to describe in detail, all these, these signs and symptoms, man, it's just like, you know, it it doesn't, it doesn't take, (laughs) it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot to go back and revisit your training pathway and say, Oh, it happened there. It happened during rockets. It happened during this, it happened, you know, all these times. So it really is. And for those guys that are, you know, are still in guys that have, you know, seven, 800 combat missions, you just like, Holy cow. Yep. So, so what does it lead to? Huh? You, you want to move on or you no, stick on, it, stay on? Yeah. No, what I just like to know is, 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 is as I read, read through the paper and, and we'll post this paper on our website and I'm going to get a bunch of other people to post it too. So if you're listening, don't worry, we're going to have that website or that this paper on my website at teamfroglogic.com as well as I'm going to try and get it on some other people out there to support as well too. But, and, and so you said there is a chronological sequence of why you put things in order as this. And, and so what is the main reason why you put TBI first? Well, because it, it the brain is the most important organ in the body, right? It, it, it's what governs our consciousness. It's what governs who we are. So one of the things that we start to see are people who have lost, essentially lost a sense of who they are. They become confused, depressed. They can't function like they, they did. I mean, we have pretty good reason that, to believe that many of the suicides that have occurred in the, in the community are from guys that were, had experienced really dramatic changes that were noticed by everybody around them, um, but that were not understood. Um, and one of those major changes is neuroendocrine functioning and, you know, essentially hormonal changes. You know, the, the, the brain is the, is the center for regulating our endocrine system, the pituitary gland. Um, and so you've got this, you've got this whole dysregulation of endocrine functioning in many, many guys. And I'm going to lead off with testosterone because that's the one that seems to be at the top of the list. But that's not the only one. Let me read it real quick because endocrine dysfunction is the next thing. So let me just read this real quick. uh, TBI has a powerful dysregulating effect on the endocrine system and particularly TBI secondary to blast wave exposure. It is believed that overactivity of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis through acute or chronic stress disrupts the hormonal interaction, including gonadal and thyroid accesses between this region of the brain and the adrenal gland. So explain that a little bit more in depth for us. Uh, simply put, it might means you're probably going to have low testosterone and your, your estrogen, your thyroid, your growth hormone, and probably a lot of other things are going to get out of whack. If you have low testosterone, what does that mean for you? Let's just start with that. Um, people tend to think of testosterone as, oh, you know, you won't have much sex drive and you need high testosterone, yeah, to get jacked and ripped. Well, yeah, that's true. But having low testosterone 
means you're going to be depressed, irritable, you're not going to sleep well, you're not going to concentrate well, you're not going to think like you used to be able to in, ter in terms of problem solving. Your friends and family are going to be like, oh, he's not the same guy he used to be. What happened to him? And you're going to think that for yourself. So like just right off the bat, if your testosterone is, you know, for a 40-year-old man is the testosterone of an 85-year-old man, we got a problem. And we need to address that problem. And we need to do it all together with, with you know, looking at the whole panel of endocrine and, and immune and metabolic uh, functioning data that we can get and, and kind of take all that into account. And that takes special expertise. Um, and it takes a willingness to go there. Most psychology, you go in to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a social worker or any mental health worker, and you present with all the classic symptoms of depression, usually they're gonna put, you're gonna get put on maybe an antidepressant medication and encouraged to come back for psychotherapy. And that's fine, that's great. But that's not targeting the testosterone. But the real issue so is going on, yeah. It's not targeting the real issue, right. And, and so in most cases, the real issue is never even looked at. That, Those that, mental health that, providers are generally not asking for the endocrine panel. How, how would they not, even know? How would they even know if they haven't been exposed and they don't understand the magnitude of exposure with special operations guys and their training and what they're experiencing on a regular basis? How would they even know? And, and I think that's why we're seeing so many guys initiate these, having these problems going in. And next thing you know, they're walking out of the VA or their doctor with a handful of meds. Yeah, a bag of pills. So I would, I would go, I would say, that's the, the guys I talk to, I, that's the first thing I say, go get a panel, go get a blood panel done. And don't just settle for, oh, you're fine. Insist on it. Don't, don't let the doctor tell you, oh, you're too young. We don't worry about that in men your age. Don't accept that. And then when you get the results, don't accept, oh, everything's in normal range. Look at the numbers for yourself. Show the numbers to somebody else. Get a second opinion on those numbers. I have, I have a friend who, who was showing all the classic signs of low T. And I, you know, I spent several months you know, imploring him to get it tested. He finally went and got it tested. And he came back and said, oh, a doctor said it was fine. A normal range. I said, well, what was your number? Right, right. He's like, right. I don't know. Go get that number. He came back the next week, says the number was 242. 242. And I said, well, what did the doc say? Because usually anything lower than 300 is in my, I'm not an endocrinologist, but I, I, that's kind of what I've always heard should be treated. And, he, and his doc said that the threshold was 240. So he was 242 and the threshold was 240. And this is a guy that's not yet even 40. Wow. Uh, you know, so... It's, there's just a lot of ignorance and a lot of bad practice out there. Bad practice habits. It's not ingrained in the mental health pro providers' habits. It's not even ingrained in primary care, internal medicine docs' habits to look at these things. Well, why would it be, right? We are the anomaly. You know, this lifestyle, this, this desired exposure, because it, it really is. I mean, you get hooked on it, right? You, that drive to be in the mix to, to, to be going overseas, to be doing this job that you experience so much pain to try and be qualified to do, then you finally get to do it. And, you know, <laughs> the old saying, uh, be careful what you ask for, you know, we've, we've had, you know, two 
two wars and multiple other theaters of conflict going on for 19 straight years. And so, you know, I mean, I, I don't think we've ever, ever, I mean, you're the historian on this as well, too. I don't think we've ever had this type of exposure before. Correct. We haven't. And you're being very gracious here. I, I'm here to tell you this should be part of standard practice and probably standard practice for every veteran and standard practice for mental health care providers in general everywhere, working with anyone. How, I, you know, how much of, how many people are diagnosed with depression and given an SSRI in this country who might have some kind of hormonal imbalance that's never even Part of the answer is we don't know, but my guess is it's a lot higher than we realize. Right. Well, let's let's go on to the next one. So we, we've got TBI, we've got endocrine issues, and now the next one you guys have listed is is sleep disturbance. And 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 let me just read the first paragraph from this: the presence of sleep disturbance among operators is nearly universal. That was the one that got me, man. I, I mean. I know just we all talk about it, but we don't talk that openly, especially when you're active. Man, are, are you sleeping? No, man, I ain't sleeping at all, right? And then operators face a number of concerns that put them at risk for problems with sleep, including TBI, headaches, pain, endocrine dysfunction, psychiatric illness, being on guard or hypervigilant, and alcohol abuse. And I, would, I wish you would have had some drug abuse in there too on that one, but uh, all of which negatively affect Carcadian rhythms, deployment schedules and mission requirements, traveling across time zones and shifting sleep schedules also disrupt normal sleep-wake cycles. Tell me a little right. bit about what you guys are seeing with this. Well, so right there's a list of about 10 things that can interfere with sleep. And if you have any, any one of those things, you might not sleep very well. Now you've got 10 of them, so good luck. Good luck catching some Z's. Well, now sleep is much more important than we used to than we used to understand. It used to be, ah, I just you know, you, you you're sleep deprived, shrug it off and push through it. Um, you know, I mean, plenty of people do that in their in their work. You know, many of us work a lot of hours, and there's nights where we don't get much sleep. There is a wide variety of sleep needs, of course. You know, my grandmother only needed three nights of sleep, and that three hours of sleep at night. That was about all she needed. She was, she was, you know, bright and energetic the next morning, but most of us need seven to nine hours to really be, to feel good. We now know that our brain, when we're asleep, our brain is consolidating memories. Mm -hmm. It's, it's cleaning itself. We have a lymphatic system in the brain that actually takes out the trash, carries out the toxins. And if we don't get that sleep, that doesn't happen and it builds up. So when you don't sleep, you don't feel good and everything flows from there. So one of the ironies is many of these things that, that cause sleep impairment are then made worse by the sleep impairment. So you literally have a vicious cycle. Wow. If you're depressed, you might not sleep. And then if you don't sleep, you get more depressed. More depressed. If you're in pain, if you're in pain, you, that'll interfere with sleep, but not getting enough sleep increases you know, the vulnerability to pain and on and on and on. So sleep is one of the most important things for our health that any of us can be doing. And it's, and it's truly and deeply affected in, in hundred percent of the guys that I've worked with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it like when you use the term universal, that's for sure. I mean, everybody, every guy I know all struggle, you know, and, and then there's always the, 
you know, it, it, as, as you leave the teams, it begins to compound itself as well too, right? Because, you know, you, you can't, you're not as, you're not as working as hard. You're not, you know, your body's not as good as shape. You're not, you know, all these other things. And, and it just begins to really, you know, compound on itself and, and, and gets away from you before you know it. And then, you know, and then the booze and the drugs start in and everything else. And you're just chasing those, those few hours of sleep. And the irony in this, I believe, and really intensifies the dysfunction amongst us is the fact that going through training, you're learn, you're taught, and it becomes a, a, a very significant um, piece of our cultural identity that you don't need sleep, right? You went right. through hell week. You, you were up for, you know, essentially 90 straight hours with no sleep getting pummeled. You don't need sleep. It's overrated. You know? survive. So look at it. Yeah, it's overrated. Right. Which is just. Well, then go to mission. Then go to a mission set. You might be all day on something and then something pops and you got to be up all night on the mission. So, you know, there's times where there's, you know, there's training and then there's, there's missions where there's just no choice. Well, you, you think about the guys from the tier one units and I, and I remember back in the heyday, you know, oh, oh six to 2011 where I'm getting, you know, I'm caught, my friends are coming back and they're doing these 90 day pumps and they're doing 90, 92, 94 straight ops in 90 days. And yeah. you think to yourself, my God, First off, how can anybody live up to an op tempo and, and be able to function uh, efficiently for that? Be, and, and then that's where you begin to recognize the true outlier nature of, of those units. But, right. but, but yeah. it's just like, man, that becomes this, this almost your, 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 what are you? You're, 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 you're lying to your brain function, right? You're like, Oh, I can do this and it's not going to affect me. And then, and then these yeah. guys, they do five straight years of this, and then all of a sudden their brain should start shutting down, right? Yeah. It's a shame. All right. Well, well, there's another piece to this, which is the very next one on the list, which is yeah. the obstructive sleep apnea. A fit 40-year-old man, 35-year-old man, 45-year-old 40, man generally isn't going to have sleep apnea. You don't see that typically. It's unusual. Usually people, usually men with sleep apnea are at least middle-aged, if not elderly, um, typically a little overweight or a lot overweight, we're seeing sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, at, at rates that are just enormous. Maybe, I'm going to guess, 50 to 70% of the guys I know have sleep Wow. Any of them get, get that when that gets done. And that, that's officially only diagnosed via a sleep lab, right? So what's the treatment for that is a CPAP. That's a prescription. Uh, it's a medical prescription for a device. Yep. And some of the guys get those and later they're, they're just like, wow, it was a game changer for me. We have a friend, you and I have a mutual friend who told me once, he said, if I got sent to a, a desert island and could choose five things to take with me, one would be my CPAP and the other would be a solar panel to charge it. <laughs> that's how that's important it was well i mean you you and i we hear these 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 um these stories where guys for the first time in 15 20 years they get sleep and what it ch how it changes their entire existence man yeah. right right and, 
and, right. and you're like, well, wait, wait a minute. Why, why, why is this, why is there not a proactive approach? Why aren't guys getting CPAP machines while they're operating, while they're in right. these environments where the air quality is shit or, or, you know, they're under this duress or whatever, you know, they're exposed to these blast injuries. Why aren't there chambers? Oh, you know, why don't there portable chambers yeah. that you put a guy in after he's been concussed or blown up in a, in a mission. So you can have that, that recovery take place in real time. It's just, it's mind boggling. Right. Right. All right. I, I guess, I guess the thing I would say to, to, to everybody out there listening, think about your, how you feel on your worst nights of sleep. Think about how you feel the next day and how you function. Um, and then think about feeling that way every day. It sucks. I'm here to tell you, man, it sucks for sure. Oh, man. Right All right, let's go to the next one. And this is something that, you know, it, it, and, and I see a lot because, you know, I do a lot of work with professional athletes and, and collegiate athletes and stuff. And this is a big one, right? You and, and, and this is kind of the one that people blow off as well, too, as just they just chalk it up as, as hey, oh, this is just part of it, right? This is just, you know, this, hey, if you want to do this, you just, you're going to have chronic joint pain, you know, orthopedic problem and headaches, right? And, and you know, what a lot of people just can't comprehend. And, and I, you know, so often when I'm giving a speech and I'm describing in detail, you know, a, a particular evolution or a series of evolutions we would experience in, in buds or SQT or even in, you know, your workups. And people are like, why the hell would you do that to your body once, much less repeatedly <laughs> over the court where it, it, it's just, that's the standard of the impact you place on yourself. And they just can't fathom the, the, the reasoning behind it. And, and I, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I mean, I, I don't know a single guy that doesn't have, you know, some kind of back pain, lower back pain, especially shoulder pain. I mean, we have ungodly amounts of shoulder issues in the teams and, and then, you know, knees, joints, hands, everything. It's just, it's, it's substantial. Now, why did you want to include that in there? You just said it. It's substantial. It contributes to, to, it makes everything complicated. When you're hurting, you can't move. You can't exercise. You can't sleep. You can't be the same person you are uh, when you're not hurting. Pain is an enormous burden, psychological burden. You know, if you're, if you're hurting and you're not sleeping, you're not going to be a good husband, a good father, a good co coworker. You have trouble keeping up with, other things, um, pain is one of the most is one of the biggest distractions that's there. And then, what do people do when they're in pain? They look for relief, anything that's that can bring relief. And so, what what do we offer for pain relief in, in our society? What kinds of things do people seek out? Well, one thing is opioids, which carry some long-term problems, as you know, <laughs> probably some substance, other types. I mean, I won't even call that substance abuse. That might all be legitimate prescriptions that are prescribed and, and managed carefully by doctors, but it's still, those still bring um, other problems with them. 
And then well, you have the stuff that's not prescribed, the, the alcohol, the other drugs, the, the stuff that some people consider recreational, but many guys, that's just their, that's their health regimen. You know, that's their health plan is to, to drink cocktail stuff a couple times a day and, and, and make it through the day and get to the next day. Well, it's not just that. It's, it's, it's your, you go in and you've got the, you know, the emotional distress. So they, they, they give you the antidepressants and then you go in and you've got chronic back pain and knee pain. And so then they give you the opioids and then you're, you know, you, you can't function. So you go get, you know, you go get a prescription for Adderall so you can stay focused through all that stuff. And then on top of that, you're, you're a functional alcoholic and you're, you know, you're, you're, you're still in this, 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 this intense, you know, you don't have the intensity of the work anymore. So guys are seeking out and they're going towards the hard stimulants that are available out there. And so yeah. you just get on this roller coaster of, of yep. pharmaceuticals, yep. man. And, yep. and, 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 and that's the real thing. And that's the next one you got down here is, is substance abuse. And what really just chaps, you know, which, which really has got me angry, you know, cause again, you know, just lost another guy overdosed. I just heard about recently. I lost my friend Gabe overdosed in, uh, back in, in August or September, I think it's August. Um, you know, my biggest, my biggest mentor in my life, uh, drank himself to death. I have another close friend on the team that drank himself to death. You know, this is, this is now, and, and, and it's not, I mean, my buddies from MARSOC, my buddies from the agency, my buddies from the, the special forces, from Ranger Battalion, they're all telling me that friends of theirs are, are one of the main components of, of their suicides. It has to do with their addiction and their substance abuse problems. But yet, it's like we don't want to we don't want to bring it to the forefront. It 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 doesn't it's not ta it's not having the shining this light on it. Like we're putting the light on TBI or we're starting to obviously the light is on PSD, but man, here's this huge component of that's rooted in our culture, right? Special ops guys, man, biggest drinking man's club in the world and 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 other things. And we have this mentality, but nobody wants to make this a focused issue. Why is that? I think you know better than I, but what does it mean for, for command to say, hey, we're concerned about substance abuse? What, is that, what does that mean? What are the policies uh, of, of the Army and the Navy and the Special Forces Commands? What are the policies of, of the Marine Corps units and the intel uh, group branches and units? What's their perspective on this from a policy perspective? Well, I think it's always been, you know, uh, you know, the whole concept of liberty is, is, is acutely tied to, to, you know, the decompression, right? And, and, and if you're going to send people to war, there's an expectation that there's a de decompression phase, either pre-phase, you know, you're going to war, you go out drinking with your buddies, everybody's cheering, your family members, your wives, your kids, yeah, hoo-yah, last party, even the workup, you know, it's, there's party. And then you come back and it's like, all right, let's blow off some steam before we have to reintegrate. And then you reintegrate 
and man, you're still trying to cope. So you're still doing, you're still drinking heavily to try and manage all this other shit. Because when you're active, you're not going in and telling your command, Hey, I I'm struggling with TBI. I'm struggling with, with, with sleep uh, apnea. I'm struggling with endocrine issues. I'm struggling with this. I've got these emotional imbalances. Oh, and by the way, I'm drinking half a bottle of Jack at night just to get to bed. No, nobody's going to say that because they're going to take you right. offline right. In, in 30 seconds. So it becomes yeah. this shame and this guilt right. affiliated with trying to manage this on your own. And, and, and when you're active duty, is there, any, is there any way you can get into trouble by drinking too much? Oh, my God. Day in and day out. I mean, I, I, parts of my career were ultimately destroyed by the fact that I, I, I drank too much, for sure. And I see it all the time. I mean, I've, some of the guys that I know, some of the greatest operators this country's ever produced, you know, at times in their careers, really suffered from this type of thing because... So, so accidents, legal issues, for sure. Everything. Messing up, messing up, for sure. Off, you know, domestic violence or other things that might be related to alcohol. But let me ask you this question. Were you ever given a breathalyzer while you were in the service? No, never. Did, did, command, did any command ever, ever ask you to do any kind of assessment to see how much alcohol was in your bloodstream at any point in time? No. I mean, there was random drug tests for sure that were That's done. my point. Yeah. That's my point right there. Random drug tests. But they weren't looking for alcohol. No, were certainly they? not. No, alcohol what was they, the – What were they looking for? Uh, well, they were looking for marijuana. They were looking for cocaine, crystal meth. They were looking for steroids. They're looking for. So what, so what happens when somebody pops positive on one of those tests? Well, I think every what's case the, is. What's, I mean, the toler- what's the tolerance level for that? Well, when, when, when I was in, I mean, lots of guys would, you know, there was, there were cases where guys, you'd be busted down, you sent to the fleet, you come back maybe, or you change commands or whatever, you know, they try, but, you know, after, in the, over the last however many years, there's been, at, at, the, at a certain point, there's a zero tolerance, right? Like, I have one friend who got pop positive, and they kicked him out, and the guy ended up committing suicide because he lost his identity and his career. So, instead of saying, hey, whoa, we've got a bigger issue here, and let's help this person try and manage this, it's like, oh, no, you idiot. You can't, you're, you, you're going against, you know, you, you got caught. So screw you. You're, you're going against. Instead of, oh, why is this guy doing this? Why does right. he have a need to do this? And, and what is, does he need help? I mean, there's a, there was a story back in the day where uh, there was a guy who got hooked and, and drove out on the, the uh, O course. And, and he was all, he was high and he was, uh, inebriated and, and ends up blowing his brains out on a, on a O course, you know, and you wonder, Hey man, what if there was a program that's saying, wow, you're really under stress. We've, we're doing this to your brain. We're doing this to your psychology. We're doing, we're changing how you, you, the state, this hypervigilant state you're living in, man, why don't you, if, if you got an issue, come on in, we're not going to hammer you. We're not going to destroy your career. We're not going to do we want to help you get clean. We want to help you get sober. You, you would yeah. think they're investing that's all the, this. Right. That's the compassionate approach. 
that's the approach that would sort of leave the door at least cracked open for somebody to walk through it and say, I need to, I need to take a time out from the work and get myself right and get the care I need and then be allowed to go back to the work. Absolutely. And I think, and I can understand from a commander's perspective why there might be problems with that. But at the same time, you can't deny how many guys, real. Is, you can't deny it's real, exactly. And how many guys do you and I know between us, or know of, maybe not know personally, but know of, who probably struggling with massive traumatic brain injury, massive endocrine dysfunction, massive depression, confusion, haven't slept in weeks, turn to, or are using alcohol or other drugs as a way of managing their collective allostatic load and the pain from all of that and end up dying, Why, whether it's accidental or intentional. Tons. I mean, the numbers are staggering. I mean, that's why, that's why our, our suicide rate in the special operations has tripled in the last few years, you know, and, 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 and the expectation from not only us uh, for in the community, but from all of you guys that are helping support us is that it's not going to go the other way, you know, especially when we have all these 9-11 babies that, that retire with 20 straight years of combat. And now all of a sudden, you know, they've got to reintegrate into a society that's pretty fatigued with war and, and also pretty yeah. fatigued with the recognition that veterans are struggling. Hey, yeah. you signed up, you did this. This is your, you, right. you chose to go down there. And, and what are we really doing in Afghanistan? What are we really doing in Iraq? It right. hasn't been a, a real war since 2011. You know, this is by your command's choice. It's by the warmongers and in and, and politics and all this. And you're just like, well, wait a minute. I, I'm just doing my damn job, man. So, anyways, that was a little bit of a rant. I apologize for that. <laughs> no, it's right on, brother. It's right on. Listen, before, well, so, we, before we go on, yeah. I, I just want to take a little break. And I just want to, uh, I'm sorry. I just need to mention my sponsors real quick. All right. Thanks for the break. Uh, a quick word from our sponsors. First off, I want to say, hey, um, man, uh, thank you on it. I, I really can't uh, begin to uh, fully explain to you, Aubrey, and your team how much it means to me that you're a part of my show, but more importantly, how Onnit products are part of my life. I got to tell you, I mean, first right here, uh, their key, one of their biggest products, their anchor product, if you will, Alpha Brain, which uh, is to help support memory and focus. This thing is, uh, this uh, little pill I take almost every day uh, is, is something that has really enhanced my ability to not only uh, uh, subdue my own worries based on all, all my issues, right, that I've experienced not only as an athlete but more so uh, in the special operations, all the traumatic brain injury stuff, whether uh, running rocket ranges or doing breachers courses or or being around explosives or just all the different types of uh, impact injuries as well as uh, uh, blast waves I've, I've been exposed to, man, this is the product that I turn to every morning. It's such a critical part of, of my functionality uh, and helping my uh, cognitive alacrity as well as my ability to uh, remember things. Uh, as I get a little older, I'm starting to notice my memory starting to go a little bit uh, faster, uh, which causes some great deal of distress in myself and my family. 
But with Onnit's help and and Alpha Brain product, man, it's really made a significant difference for me. So every morning I wake up, have my glass of water, pop a little Alpha Brain, and and I'm set for the day. So uh, if you're interested in improving memory and focus, uh, go over to onnit.com. That's O-N-N-I-T.com and check out this little sucker uh, because I promise you it'll it'll have a very positive impact on 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 how you uh, go through your day in terms of your memory, your focus, and just all around your ability to to cognitively function at the highest possible level imaginable. All right, that's this. And the other one that's been a massive help for me because of all, I think, the exposures I've had around the world is on its total gut health, uh, which helps healthy gut flora and optimal digestion. Um, this little packet of, of, of pills that I, I, I also eat after lunch every day um, has really helped me, and I've had significant gut problems uh, since I got out of the military. Uh, still, we, VA doesn't know. Uh, my gastroenterologist still hasn't been able to figure out exactly what it is. But what I do know is that when I take total gut health, uh, I have a much better time digesting. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of the other signs and symptoms I typically would have from eating various types of foods. So this has also been a lifesaver for me. Uh, that's on its total gut health. Again, on it. Thank you so much for providing me with these great products, or providing everybody with these in order to maximize human performance. But also uh, for your support with the podcast. Uh, uh, I just am so proud and happy to be able to. Uh, uh, deliver a, a real heartfelt message in support of the things that you're putting out to the public. So thank you on it. God bless you. All right. And the other one is right here, this big sucker. This is uh, from Wise Company, uh, the the very best in freeze-dried foods out there for emergency preparedness. Uh, listen, coronavirus is real. If you are not paying attention to this, then you are literally letting your family down. You're letting yourself down. Uh, this is a very real thing. And it is coming to the United States regardless of whether or not you believe it or not. It is coming. I uh, just saw a new article suggesting that uh, uh, Iran had just had uh, another huge outbreak of 50 new uh, coronavirus cases. Cases. Italy is having a massive outbreak of cases right now. So it's, it's moving through Europe uh, and, and it's on its way to America. So listen, if, if you are not prepared right, for this next pandemic, then you're wrong. So go over to wisefoodstorage.com, that's wisefoodstorage.com, and check out these buckets, right? And you can get uh, a month's worth of buckets, you can get six months, you can get one year. Uh, What I do is we have, for my family, we have six months worth of stored food, and and this stuff has a 25-year shelf life, it's easy to store, it tastes great, I've tried just about every meal they have. But more importantly, it gives me the peace of mind, right? I know that if somehow, some way this thing goes crazy and we have to go to our E&E extract point or wherever that is, and I'm not going to share that with anybody, uh, that we're going to be able to have enough food in order to support my family of six, as well as other friends that might participate. Uh, and we're going to be able to be ready for this thing and, and we'll be able to last and tell uh, some type of uh, uh, solution or some type of uh, um, new antibodies are, are designed and developed to fight the coronavirus. But this is the way that you can move forward and being ready. So head on over to uh, wisefoodstorage.com, put in the promo code FROGLOGIC, and you will get 25% off 
everything you order, man, everything on the site, 25% off. Now, if you're going to make an order that could cost you $2,000, you got 25% off. That is a substantial savings in order to save the lives of you and your family. Now, just go over to wisefoodstorage.com, promo code FROGLOGIC, 25% off everything. All right. And the last little tidbit I want to promote is uh, my new anti-bully book. I just posted uh, uh, last Friday a post about the young man from, um, uh, from Australia, the young kid who has dwarfism who essentially was bullied and his mom filmed this and, and the whole world has come to support him. And, and what I just want to recognize, rec- help everybody recognize is that there are a lot of solutions to bullying. And one of them is based on the research I conducted for over two years before I wrote this book. And what I have here is, is my, my, my super, Navy SEAL superhero character, Doc Frog, with his team, Semper Fido, Wiley Wolf, and Hannah Hawk. And they get together with all their special operations uh, uh, missions and, and, and abilities and, and just the, the legacy of ability to solve great, hard problems in tough places. And they create this incredible how-to book for a, a, an individual being bullied to assemble the right team in order to create... Uh, the perfect uh, um, counter surveillance program against the bully to where then they can go and create a, a very healthy uh, process to developing an after actions report or a report that they can give to their school administration, their teachers, their parents. And then and on the unfortunate, uh, unlike, uh, you know, horrible event, they can go give it to law enforcement, too. And with that product, with that that after actions product, they will be able to stop bullying in its tracks as well as lead to an efficient way in order to get that bullying the help they need to stop that type of destructive behavior. So head over to my website at teamfroglogic.com. Go to the store and check out Doc Frog's Anti-Bully Manual. And if you're you're excited about that, uh, head over there. Oh, I got it. Hold on, head over there and also get Doc Frog's PT, Physical Training Manual. And this is 12 exercises to help uh, you and your children get going in order to be healthier day in and day out. All right, so that's Team Frog Logic. And if you're also interested in, in, in uh, hiring me as a speaker, I would love for your contact form. I work with major Fortune 500 companies. Uh, I work with teams and organizations, nonprofits, you name it. I'm happy to uh, help spread the Frog Logic message to you and your organization. Just uh, simply uh, send me a contact email on the website at teamfroglogic.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Thank you. Well, I just uh, thanks, Chris, for a little bit of pause. Uh, I had to mention our sponsors. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do this show as well as we're able to uh, without them. So much appreciated right there. All right. So we just talked about substance abuse, which ultimately, you know, I think, and, and you think, well, I don't want to speak for you, but there's a component of it that's built in culturally. And then there's also uh, in terms of access, it's a lot easier to go to your local if you're feeling depressed, if you're having some really horrific suicidal inclinations, you're not in a good space, it's easy to just go down to the local liquor store or go to a dealer or whatever you're going to do to begin to anesthetize this very substantial problem of depression and suicide, which is the next thing listed on, 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 in the paper. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what you, 
you've witnessed and the extensive nature of depression, how it's relative to PTSD and, and TBI in particular, and then, you know, ultimately the suicides that, that result from it? Well, we, we know that TBI can, can contribute to depression. We know that low testosterone can contribute to or is a major contributor for to depression or feeling depressed if if that's if the if the testosterone is low. Why do you guys why is there suicides? You know, and I think you gotta look at every single thing on the list here. It's not suicide is never simple, it's never one factor. It's or I should say it's rarely one factor. But if your if your brain isn't functioning, if you're not sleeping, if you're in a lot of pain, I mean, there, there are people who commit suicide, not depressed, commit suicide because of pain, chronic, unrelenting pain that's just unbearable. And I mean, and they're true from all walks of life, that, that's true. So put it all together, the loss, the existential angst, the, the loneliness in many cases for people who are estranged from families and children, the anger, the hormonal imbalances that they may not even be aware of, probably aren't aware of, the substance abuse, the pain, the headaches, the cognitive dysfunction, and the confusion. All that adds up. That's a nasty cocktail of misery and despair. It really is. And then, you put, and, then you, and then you put on top of that leaving the teams or leaving the unit, leaving the service, leaving the, the important meaningful work that, that you've been doing for five, 10, 20 years and trying to reestablish a new identity, a new purpose in life. It's a hell of a thing. It's debilitating. It is. I mean, from my own personal experience, it was, it was probably the worst time of my life was the three years after I left the teams. I mean, absolutely devastating time period of my life. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, everybody, because post-traumatic stress disorder takes has taken such uh, you know such a, a a cornerstone of our consciousness or our societal consciousness, right? This is why guys are killed. They're from what they witnessed. They saw something happen downrange that doesn't sit well with them. But the realities are, we're you know we're seeing that it is a a lot of this identity crisis. It is a lot of this, this detachment, right? Disorder where you're, you don't feel connected to meaning or, or true value anymore like you once did. And, and trying to, and, and there's no, there's no definitive pathway. There's not this one set, all right, you know, our pipeline now is what, it's a two year immersive training pipeline to just be able to be considered to go into a platoon to go do the work a year and a half later after that. So it's almost essentially almost four and a half, five years before you ever get to do your job. But yet your last day in the service, man, they give you a plaque, they have a little retirement ceremony and you know, that's it. You don't get phone calls from anybody anymore. Like, all right, thanks for playing. You're gone. You're not part of the brotherhood, so to speak at that point. And that's devastating to a lot of people. It is devastating to anybody to lose their, to lose their brotherhood, their tribe, their sisterhood. Well, and that's what we, we see it throughout all, all societies and subcultures and subcultures, right? It, anybody yeah, that's absolutely. ever been ostracized or excommunicated or becomes persona non grata in any particular way, 
the devastating psychological effects of that is substantial. Well, it is, and let's just, let's just say it in even a more simple word. To feel lonely and isolated, to feel alone with whatever problems you have in life. That's, that's, that's a terrible thing, and that's, we did not evolve. Humans as a species did not evolve to be solitary, single um, individuals. We, we've evolved through you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of years to be part of a tr- part of the group, a tribe, uh, uh, surrounded by and immersed in a group of people who we live with, eat with, sleep with, kill party with, with kill with, hunt with, um, raise children with, um, sing with, dance with, all of that. And that's why so much- it's so fascinating because this is, our program is the ultimate composite of that, right? Where we become, you become a member of the, your ODA team, you become a member of your battalion, or you become a member of your SEAL platoon, man. It's the ultimate tribe. And, and, and you know, you, you buy into this with such substantial uh, behavioralism and, and cognition and, and the effects of, of, of how you feel emotionally connected to this, this concept, this tribe itself, and then, and then it's gone, man. Brutal. Yeah. Why, why did you guys, and let me just read a little, little bit of, let me just read a couple sentences from this, the, the post-traumatic stress uh, paragraph. While the relationship between combat and PTSD is widely acknowledged, we found relatively little evidence of this disorder in its prototypic form. That is, uh, that is with fear and avoidance as central symptoms. Virtually none of the operators uh, reported fear or avoidance reactions related to thoughts or cues associated with their combat experience. In contrast, most indicated they enjoyed their combat deployments and missed the action. Nevertheless, because of the large number of traumatic events, it is important to evaluate operators for this disorder. Now, that's fascinating to me, right? you know, you have guys that have three, 400 combat missions and they potentially don't have PTSD from the missions and it's coming from some other place. What, can you explain that a little bit more in detail? Well, let's back up. Um, let me say a few things about PTSD and, and I've spent my career working with veterans related to PTSD, and I've worked with other populations with PTSD as well. I think we, I don't think we really have a good handle on PTSD. And I think a lot of ways it's become a sort of a catch-all diagnostic category to say, you were traumatized, you had this bad thing happen. We were, we're gonna recognize the impact of that on you. So if we, if we accept that, if we accept PTSD in that, in that form, um, then yes, I think every operator I've met has PTSD. And, and that's if we include the depression, the anger, the worry and rumination, um, the reactivity to kind of certain types of stressful things. Yeah, maybe they have PTSD. But they don't have what is considered the classics, used to be at least considered the classic symptoms of the disorder, which are um, somebody who, who goes through a traumatic experience and then when there's something that's there to remind them of that, 
kind of lose control of their ability to manage the, the fear. So they, their heart starts pounding, they become extremely upset, and they do escape avoidance kind of behaviors to get away from the thing that reminds them of the traumatic experience. That's what I don't see in operators. Most operators still enjoy, years, even years after leaving service, still enjoy going and shooting guns, still enjoy getting together with other operators and talking about what they saw and did. They don't show the pattern of being woken up throughout the night, specifically by nightmares about what they did in combat. I don't see that. I just don't. Um, I do see a lot of things that might we might put into that rubric of PTSD slightly different. I talk about, I should have been on this mission. I should have been in that chair on that helo that got shot down. I know several people that weren't on extortion 17 and feel guilty about it when it got shot down. Uh, I know one guy told a story about how they rolled out in a convoy one day in, during daylight, and then there was a long gunfight, and he got into a, a different seat in a different care, armored personnel carrier or whatever they were riding in, and the one he had been in got blown up. Nobody survived. Somebody else was in his that haunted him. Um, I wear a casualty bracelet of a man who was killed in action. And the, the men that were with him when he was killed were, they, they talk about it, or one of them is I'm very close to talking about. It should have been him. You know, there's, there's that sense of, and then what was the hardest thing for him to do back stateside was to face the man's family. Survivors. And I've heard that from guys, survivor's guilt, survivor's remorse. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd, I wish I'd done something different. You know, you've got that, that old parable of, of a butterfly wing flaps on the other side of the world and it changes the course of human history on the other side of the world. You know, that kind of thing. If thing. only I had, yeah, yeah, right. It, and you know, you hear guys say, well, if only I had, only hadn't, you know, stepped over there to smoke a cigarette or if only I had, you know, leaned on my left elbow instead of my right elbow bullet would hit me, you know, instead of the other guy. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is one of the things that a lot of guys tune into after their, their military career is over is regret about not having been there for their family. Wow. More. Missing birthdays of children, missing Christmases. You know, I had a, a mutual friend of ours was out here, spent Christmas with me couple months, a few months ago, and he came out with his wife, his, his lovely wife, his wonderful children, his mother came with him. And one of the things we were talking about was how many Christmases had they spent together? Um, not very many, not very many. This was a special time because they were all together. And that, that was really cool to be, to be there and privileged for me to be kind of be a part of the family for that week. Um, but also very much aware of this was, you know, this was a new thing for them. Well, it's such a substantial component of, of your, your other family's unit, as well as your own emotional development, right? Is that you can, you can participate in these very substantial, you know, uh, evolution, evolutions of, 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 of growth within your, your family dynamic. And, and for us, it's just non-existent, right? I mean, I remember I missed my oldest daughter's first birthday, I was overseas working for the agency and, and it was probably one of the most devastating days of my life. Cause like, here I am going, 
you know, wow, this is my, my pursuit of whatever this is, is more important than my daughter's first birthday. And, and you live with that and you, you, you battle that. And, and, yeah. you know, and I've talked yeah. to you extensively, like trying to get to that place in your life where you can let that go and say, all right, I can start re-engaging and rehabilitating those feelings right now if I choose to, depending upon, but but some guys really struggle with that type of, of stress, right? Yeah, yeah. One of the very first guys, I mean, this was years ago, and at one point I thought, oh, I should, I'll try, I'll, I'll, I'll do an interview with him. I'll ask him some questions about PTSD symptoms. And one of the things you have to do when you do that is like you have to start identifying, well, what are the tra traumas, right? So, you know, so I'm waiting for him to tell me about his thoughts on, you know, one of these combat missions or something like that, or the accumulation of all of them, you know, that sort of thing. None of that bothered him. What, he, what bothered him, what upset him, what kept him awake at night was that his, his, his wife had asked for a divorce and had initiated a divorce. And at the time, I think they were still in the process. That was the most devastating event of his life that he could point to. Yeah. And when you, when you look at the statistics for, for special operations community in terms of, of those, those issues, divorce and, and, and these emotional issues, and you've got those listed here, you know, a couple down after post-traumatic stress, there's, there's the anger, there's the worry, there's rumination of stress reactivity. And by all means are, are no small things. I, I think, you know, for sure. But, but, but I think those kind of go together. I do you know, too. Depression, anger, PTSD, yeah. worry, ruination, um, not having the capacity to, to, to deal with as easily with the small stressors that one would have had 10 years ago um, is, is really predominant. And it goes in, it all gets kind of lumped in together with not sleeping, being in pain, having headaches, not being able to concentrate as well, the hormonal changes. And then you get to the to the marriage and the family. And, and this is a big one. Community. This is yeah. a big one because really when you're I when after you've departed and you're you're gone, you know, from the the rigors and the the schedule of 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 being an operator and now you're you're you know, you're just a regular guy around your family trying to reintegrate to their lives, right? Not them re being forced to integrate with yours, but now right. they're they become the 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 predominant factor and and many guys just they can't work through it and that's why we have these you know crazy divorce rates and what's interesting is you have the crazy divorce rates while guys are in the service and some of the marriages that made it all the way through those 20 years there's a whole new stressor when at the point of retirement or separation and sometimes marriages that that made it through the tough part don't make it through the part that they expect to suddenly be the easy part. I've got a perfect example. One of a, a close mutual friend of ours had a, a, one of his mentors in a team went all the way up command master chief, very prestigious unit, right? Uh, you know, 20 some odd years gets out. They built this immaculate home in, in, you know, uh, an area in the, in the country, beautiful, like, like 5,000 square foot home with, you know, on, 20 acres out in the middle of nowhere, like this dream thing. And, and two months into it, you know, she's like, I want a divorce. You got to get out. 
And a guy ended up being homeless. This guy ended up being homeless for almost a year after that, living out of his car and, and, and parking his car in, in national forests and, and bathing in, in these places or in rivers. And, and that would like, and, and what was amazing, I, I ended up getting to interact with him during this phase or right after this phase, he had finally kind of met somebody, got into a, 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 a rental space, but he was, it was actually a place of greater content for him because he had none of the stressors at all of anything, trying to manage relationships, manage ex- expectations. He was just on his own free of all responsibility. Yeah. And it was, it was always very perplexing to me going, man, you, you did all this, you, you served, you, you gave yourself of all this. Now you're, you're, you've been reduced to accepting homelessness as, as your fate. And that was just, that blew me away. I, I was just like, how can this be? And that was one of the first big instances in, 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 in my recognition. Wow, there's something much more substantial going on, not just with me, but with everybody. Right. right. Let's take a moment to, to talk about the spouses. In fact, let's take a moment to give a shout out to the spouses. Yeah. Because I know, I know a lot of spouses, a lot of wives who are, who are hanging in there with husbands and loving their husbands and doing everything they possibly can to support and understand. And it's, it's tough. It's tough for them. And think about everything we've just discussed. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a spouse and, and you're the person you love, the person you've chosen um, as your, your life partner is suffering from depression, anxiety, anger, headaches, pain, not sleeping, not cognitively functioning. It's miserable. It's, it's really tough on a relationship, no matter how hard you are fighting for it. And then on top of that, as a spouse, you know that your, your operator husband has these losses, the losses that continue. So you're aware of all the people that from the community, these are, these are virtually friends and family who have, who have been lost, either through combat, training accidents, overdoses, suicides. Um, there's a burden on the families, the spouses especially, that we just, you know, we don't talk enough about or think about enough. And then, of course, you have the, the gold star wives who, who have lost their husbands in combat um, explicitly. And their children. And several of them. Their children who've lost their, their fathers, you know, I mean, that, that's a whole sure. nother aspect right. of this, right. the fractal right. side of, of, of this yeah. operator scene. Yeah. I, I was, I was talking with a young, young man recently, 15 year old, um, tough kid, um, smart, doing everything in life that, you know, you would want a kid to do. And one of our conversations, he, he said, you know, I've never really had a chance to be a kid. I've always said to be, strong. My dad's been away for 20 years, you know, and so my entire life, I've been sort of the man of the house. Wow. And that's meant, that's meant every minute of the day wondering, hey, I wonder if my dad's alive right now. I wonder if my uncles are alive right now, because that's how he, that's how he understood the men uh, who served with his father to be. And some of them weren't alive. So then there's the funerals that he's been to, the Arlington ceremonies. Wow. Um, that's a heavy, that's a heavy childhood, you know, and it's, 
that some of our conversation was like, well, when do you get to be a kid? And what so, does that even yeah. mean? What does that even mean? I mean, is, is, is there even a premium on childhood, which is the great irony anymore because so often operators feel this need to, because they're, they're dealing with the very worst that civilization can offer. And it's, they've, they've taken it upon themselves to, that this is their mission is to essentially eradicate evil on the planet. So when they come home to be able to move into that level of interaction on a child in a childlike state is impossible. And, and ultimately I've seen plenty of times that they, there's a, there's a, a there's, I won't, I don't want to call it an insistence, but there's a definite inference. Hey, you need to grow up. Life is hard. Yeah. You got to be tough. Yeah. You know? And it's Get just there like, quickly. It's, it's, it's crazy. So um, yeah, I, I think the, the family issue plays a, a massive role in operator syndrome. And I'm really happy that it was a major component of, of the paper. Um, yeah. Let, let's, and, let's, and, you know, let, let me just say one more thing. Just, I, just to please some of the, some of the people I admire, some of the people I know on this planet and admire and, and respect and love the most are, are some wives. I'm thinking in particular about four or five wives that I know who, Man, I just I tip my hat to to them for what they do every single day and what they continue to do, and and that includes some gold stars, and some wives who lost their who are technically not considered gold stars, but who lost their husbands to suicide. Yeah, which is a shame because you would you, they should still be, you know, given that that opportunity of of, of being honored that way because you know. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's crazy. That's a, to me, that's a that's a battlefield death. Hundred per I agree. Absolutely. So the after you the the marital family and com, community dysfunction, there's there's problems with sexual health and intimacy. We can obviously that's uh, you know, the the changing of, of social environments, the the stressors of, of the endocrine issues, the non sleeping, the lack of detachment, the, the intimacy issues for sure. Uh, as a result of being on guard, which is the next session, or hypervigilant. I think everybody can, that makes a lot of sense to people. But what they really, what, what's very, I think, critical to understand is that what does that do neurologically to live in that perpetual state of hypervigilance? What are you guys seeing there? Well, it's a little bit hard for me. I don't, I don't know exactly physiologically, but if you're on guard all the time, that takes a lot of your, that's a lot of your uh, cognitive res capacity right there. You're, I mean, I've, I've, like, for example, I was sitting in a, in a hotel lobby uh, once with a friend and his eyes kept scanning the room around us. He was aware of everybody coming in and I could see it. Uh, and, and he wasn't fixating on any one individual person, but he was, he was basically just kind of, he was, he was alert. And a couple of times he lost track of our conversation. And, you know, I even said, that guy over there with the backpack, are you worried about him? And he's like, no, I'm just keeping an eye on him. I'm just kind of noticing him. But think about, it. you walk into a room, you sit down, and, and the first thing that automatically goes through your head is where's the exits? What's the plan if something goes wrong? 
Um, what do I do if this happens over there? What do I do if this happens over there? I mean, that, that's very adaptive. That's why you guys are, the guy, those of you who are alive are still alive. Mm -hmm. But you get back into a civilian society where, you know, we're not surrounded by danger literally in every moment. I mean, yes, bad things can happen at any time to any of us, but that takes a lot of capacity to be that vigilant. And it interferes with sleep. Absolutely. I know some guys that, you know, we talked about substance abuse, but I know some guys that won't take anything to help sleep because they don't want to be incapacitated if something good happens in the night. If something happens, yeah, break in, whatever. Yeah, I, I know those yep. guys as well, too. Um, I know I have a, I know a guy who will, his wife describes this, but he acknowledges it's true. If there's an unusual noise in the middle of the night, he's awake in a second, like, Yep. You know, I might hear a dog. You, I might hear a dog bark and sleep right through it, or notice it and go right back to sleep. But he's up, clearing his house, clearing the house with a gun in his hand. Yep, with a gun in his hand. Absolutely. And his wife is like, "We've got small children. I don't know if the, you know, I don't know how awake he really is. Um, is he sleepwalking? Is this is he is this an autonomic, automatic response kind of thing? And it it, it kind of is. You know, I'm still alive, but. I think it absolutely becomes autonomic. I mean, you can't you can't condition the human the human mind to be in in such a state where you know if if you're not there, you're gonna die or get someone else killed. I, I just it, it it's absolutely becomes just a component of of your existence. Right. It's just an, an, so an unwind word. Yeah, you use the word conditioned, and that's exactly what it is. It's a conditioned response, a deeply con conditioned response. Deep conditioning. That, that's it. That, I mean, that's essentially when you take a, a look at all these things, and you, know, you go down and you see memory, concentration, and cognitive impairments. I mean, i.e., you know, traumatic brain injury, all these other issues, right? right. The vestibular vision impairments, you know, a absolutely a, a massive component. And and then, you know, you get into these challenges of transition from military to civil, civilian life, right? And you, there's no expectation of that transition when you're going through it. You don't even, you're, it, what's remarkable is that every other time in your life, you're in this state of, of long, prolonged assessment, right? If I do this, this is going to help me in my life down here, where we're like, hey, I'm going to go subject myself to the most brutal application of, of physical, mental, spiritual, emotional pain for this so I can go to war. And that's all. That's all I want to do. I just want to go to war. That's what it is. I've got yeah. no real idea yeah. or concept of what it's going to, the effects it's going to have. I have no real idea or concept of, 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 of what the actual effects of, of all these different types of exposures is going to do to me. And I certainly can't comprehend combat until I get there. So it, it's all, it's all in this this theoretical place that once you know this through this immersion that you're the 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 impact is is fast it's rapid it's exaggerated and it's consistent right and then all of a sudden it just ends and now you're in this civilian experience that you really don't understand and that you really don't fit in and now all these existential issues come into in, into play right Talk a little bit about what an existential issue is and why it's so critical to this whole operator syndrome. Well, existential issues are the things that many people don't think about. 
that are just kind of taken for granted. But when you really put them in, put a lens on them and bring them into focus, they become kind of centralizing points of holy shit, there's this thing here. And so, for example, I mean, I, I list several of them here. This is by no means a, a complete list, but mindset that discounts the future. How do you, how do you think about what you're going to be like when, in your old age when, you, when there's a very good chance you'll die tomorrow? How many 20-year-old operators or how many 20-year-old uh, trainees going into the special forces think to themselves, you know what? I mean, and this is true of 20 year olds in general, they think they're gonna live forever. But like when you're going, when you're, you've got a 20 year old going into buds or going into ranger um, selection, is that something that you're thinking about? What, what is it gonna be like when I'm 50 or 70? Of course not. When you're, when you're down range, what's, what's on your mind? What's right in front of you? There's a tunnel vision right to that point, that mission set. Um, and it has to be focus. we call it front sight focus it's essential you can't do it without it has to be that way. right it has to be that way yeah and now you now you're out of the out of the service now suddenly it's a it's a tough shift i've seen this over and over again we call this discounting the future that's a, that's actually a, a phrase from economics meaning future isn't as valuable as the present and wow. and for somebody with a, with a, who's, who's not discounting the future, they think of things like, oh, I'm going to take really good, I'm going to eat really, really well so that, uh, you know, when I'm 80, I'll feel good. I'm going to save money so that when I'm 80, I'll, have, I'll be financially secure. But if you think you're going to die tomorrow or next week or in a few years, you behave differently. The future isn't as valuable as the present moment. And so how do you get out of that mindset of not discounting the future? How do you get into the mindset of saying, you know what, I'm going to develop a lifestyle right now today that will maximize my health, my well-being, my financial security, so that when I'm 100 years old, I'll be good. That's a challenge. That's a Massive real challenge. challenge. It's a ma well, yeah. I mean, there, it's, you know, every, every, phase of every phase of development, right, with the more acceptance that you you move into along the way, the the farther away you you get from that reality, right? Because everything is temporal, right? Everything it's just about the next training cycle, the next deployment, the next the next mission, right? None of it is is this this you know long term uh, phasic approach where you're like, all right. This, if I continue along this path, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose down this place. It, it just, you don't, you, don't, it, you don't even think about that. It's just not even yeah. a part of it. And, you know, that's why I, I was really excited to see you guys put that in there. And, and when I, you know, I probably give, I don't know, 10, sit down with 10 kids a year, you know, and, and we'll give them a talk about, oh, so you want to be Navy SEAL. Are, are you prepared for, literally, I, 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 I go down all uh, the list on here and say, are you perfect? And they're like, what's that? What's that? What's that? And, and you say, this is part of it. And this is, this is a document. It's, it's scientifically proven now. It's medically proven. This is part of what you will experience. You might be the, 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 the outlier that doesn't experience 
the totality of operator syndrome, but you are going to go to a place where you, you know, you have a sense of, of impending grief, the survivor's guilt, right? And, and what you also included in there is, is, is the meaning of killing. Can you expand on that a little bit too? Yeah, this is, this is a, a slightly underdeveloped idea here. I mean, it's very underdeveloped here. In fact, a good friend of ours, Dan Luna and I are writing a book on this topic, or we're, we're developing a book on this topic. Think about what we're all taught. The Ten Commandments in this country, we're taught the Ten Commandments. We are, we live in a society that um, we have a lot of modern luxuries. We don't really have the kind of connection with death and dying and violence and killing that, that humans have had throughout most of our existence as a species. Um, we don't tend to kill our own meat on a regular basis. We go to the supermarket if we want to, we want a hamburger or a steak. We don't tend to die at home. Some people do, but many people die in a hospice or a hospital. Most of us don't prepare our own dead. We have undertakers and morticians for that. So our connection, our intimate connection with that death and the process of dying are somewhat, has become somewhat remote. So what does it mean to kill? What does it mean to take a life? Most, most, most people in America don't have any real concept of that. How do you take somebody who was brought up with that background, put them into the military, and now they're killing? They're taught to kill. They have to kill. That's part of it. And what many people don't realize um, in America is how, how much killing our special for operators have done. Special forces, and it's not just killing. It's not just saying, hey, we're going to drop a bomb over there. Some people will die. It's not just, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna launch some rockets over there or we're gonna fire some artillery and some people will die. It's, we're gonna go into a room of somebody's house and we're either gonna capture or kill them. We're gonna be standing over them. We're in close quarters. Sometimes it's hand to hand. It's incredibly, you know, it's incredibly intimate. No, I, I think, you know, this and, is- And I don't, I don't have a simple like summary comment on that other than to say it's, it's an, when you when you really go there, it's a really powerful thing. It's massive. Yeah. It's it's yeah. I, I believe it's it's the it's the core root change that it, it it sets guys up for the profound effects that we're seeing, right? Because you're taking like I like you just described, you're taking a kid from whatever subculture he's been indoctrinated into, right? Which it, which very few other if you're from a place where uh, violence is a part of everyday survival, right? Inner cities, uh, you know, certain areas that are more ripe with violence that cartel held regions or, you know, where just violence, even, even, you know, you're, you're, you grew up in a household where your father, or your mother used to beat you on a regular basis, that kind of domestic violence approach. The overwhelming majority are not exposed to that. And, and, and like you said, there's a, there's a, a detachment from death. Uh, that has really uh, been prevalent in our modern Western society. So, you know, I, you know, all of a sudden these kids are stepping into this program from day one where the essence of what your main function and purpose in life is to take other human life. Bad guys, go kill bad guys, kill bad dudes, right? God bless. Ultimately, uh, ultimately yeah. it comes down to that, right? Yeah. And, and that, and, and, 
Go ahead. So what does it mean to do that? What does it mean to do that one time and then sit back and, and live with that and reflect on that? What does it mean to have done that 10 times? What does it mean to be one of those special operators who has taken hundreds, hundreds of lives? So many that you don't even know how many you've taken. You, you lost, lost count. After, you lost count after the, you know, halfway through the first deployment. You've lost count. Imagine that. Imagine the effects of that on, on a human. I mean, it's, you know, that, that I think I, I really am excited that you and Dan have, have, are, have embarked on this. I think it, you know, God bless Dave Grossman. We, you know, we interviewed him, Marcus and I, and, and Wizard yep. interviewed him on, yep. and he's done yep. some really profound work with on killing and on combat. But I think the next great, generation, great book, great book, yeah, I think the next generation of this really can rest and where you and Dan take this. So I'm really excited that you guys are, are, are going with this. It's going to be phenomenal. All right. The last one that you have kind of here is, is the fear of developing invisible wounds. And I, and I highlighted a, a, a little section here and it says, you know, the confluence of overlapping and interrelated factors creates a vicious cycle resulting in a soft operator with compromised function an impaired ability to transition to civilian life, right? And and that's really you as you're you've gone far enough deep into the programs or the, the the exposure to combat and being a part of the community to where, you know, I I know now it's very very it's a very regular concern for guys going, what the hell? I, all these other guys I see are killing themselves. They're they're going in, they're becoming addicts, they're divorced, they're homeless. I mean, how many, I've heard, I don't know, five or six stories about soft guys being homeless now. And, 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 yep. and now like, oh my God, am I, am I going to face that? Am I going to reach that? Those, am I going to have this barrage or this, this, this litany of scarring from all these invisible wounds that I feel? And that's what I'm, I'm, I just love that that's included in this. It's powerful and it yeah. has to be acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was um, two years ago, well, in the fall of 2018, I was at the Navy SEAL Impact Forum in San Diego. This is now an annual conference that, that they're putting on. And, and it's open to, it's, it's open to, to anybody, really. Um, and I was sitting next to a friend who had retired from the SEAL teams after I think a 24, 25 year career in the Navy. And up on the stage was Daniel Pearl presenting his work on blast wave exposure and the astral glial scarring, the interface astral glial scarring that he, had, that he was finding. And what he presented was a series of case studies. And one of the studies was, was a guy who'd been a good friend and colleague Team, teammate of the guy I was sitting next to and afterwards and several times you know not just that day but several times since then we've had a conversation where he said you know my friend was he seemed so strong he seemed so powerful I looked up to him we we worked together for a decade can't imagine could never have imagined him taking his life wow. just incomprehensible to me and he's like how many other guys are going to hit that point? How many, of the, how many of the rest of us? Am I going to be, the, is that going to happen to me? Is it inevitable? Um, is there, 
is it just like am I destined to have um, that love that type of brain injury and the cognitive dysfunction and despair and that and I think that's got to be in the back of the mind of of everybody that I talk to well I think it, it's now it's definitely coming in the back of everybody because you can't deny it anymore you can't you can't lie to yourself saying this is not a very real possibility depending upon the amount of time I put in, the amount of exposure I have. And, and even, you, you, I mean, you might only do five years and still go through an experience that's life altering, you know. Only, let's put only, let's put air quotes around the word only. Because only five years in, in the American Special Forces is a, a lot of allostatic load. It's massive, right? It's massive. I, I just, uh, my, my, my brothers that are coming out, you know, I've, I've got one buddy in, in the intelligence world that's, you know, he, not only after, a, 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 you know, exposure in, in, in a special operations unit first, but now going on, I don't know, something like 18, what, 16, 17 years within the intelligence world operating at the highest level. And, and it's just like, holy cow, man. You know, and, and he, he's, he's going to go another 20 years maybe. And I'm just like, my God, is he going to be okay? And, and we talk about it when we see each other. The, you know, it's no longer, hey, what cool guy stuff are you doing? It's, hey, are you taking care of yourself? Are you, are you doing these things? Is your mental health all right? Is your body okay? And, and, and it's so, you know, the shift I think is happening. Um, but still, but still, and, and, you know, the great irony is you still got truckloads more kids signing up every day for this stuff. I mean, it, it's just, and thank God, I mean, we need guys, right? We, we need men and, and women on the front line. We need them at the tip of the spear. I just yeah. hope that, you know, being able to clearly identify this now and what operator syndrome is. And with the help of you and, 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 you know, all of your compatriots there that are focused on this, I just hope that we can get to a place where, like, like you right here, right, in your research and, and comprehensive treatment programs needed, I put this in here, programs, uh, and you talk about the uniqueness, right, uh, to meet the unique needs of a soft community struggling with operator syndrome, a uniquely tailored, comprehensive, uh, programmatic approach is likely required and should include systemic data, systematic data collection to further our understanding of this unique population, right? And, and what's interesting is, is, is your description of how unique each person's evaluation process, each person's uh, long-term care is, and that these, that it's, it, we, we can't group the individuals into these collective groups and just kind of rubber stamp this, this generic training to these guys. Every guy requires a very distinct evaluation of their neurology, their endocrinology, their psychiatry, their psychology, their orthopedics, their internal meds, and you just have this long list down the road, and I'm like, holy shit, man, what places are, who's actually prepared for that? Because I know the VA ain't, man, so I just, thank God that you guys are doing this. 
Well, I think there's, I think there's probably two points of, of intervention here that, that, that should be talked about and thought about. One is, is what should the military services themselves be doing, both to minimize the damage, understanding that we can't eliminate the risk and the damage. What, what can be done to minimize it? What can be done to help guys along the way while they're still active? And part of that is about maintaining operational readiness. You've got a you've got a forty-year-old man, twenty years in the, in the teams, or in one of the brand one of the units, uh, who might want to serve another four years. That guy's a really important asset. Massive. A lot of training, a lot of training, a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom is there. So, what can we do to extend that the, the you know the shelf life of 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 our of our of our forces? And, and then to help what can be done as kind of at the kind of the transition point and the long-term care and treatment and health maintenance, you know, for the long haul for these, for these folks who have done so much for us as a country. And I've, I've had this as an argument many times now where I've been told, where people say, well, we got to help all veterans. And the, the VA is there for that. Right. Fine. I don't, no argument. Um, Every man and woman who serve, uh, I salute them and I respect them and there's admiration uh, and appreciation. I don't, doesn't matter what you did, how long you served, you served, you stepped up, you were there, you were, you were ready um, um, and you were willing. But we're talking about the special forces community. We're talking about a community that has experienced very unique things, very unique pressures on their body. You know, the black, you know, just started with the blast wave exposure. They need something a little bit different. We don't treat all populations the same. We recognize that children, for example, have different medical needs than adults. We recognize that men and women have different medical needs. And I think we need to get to the point where we understand and, and can agree that people from the special forces community, and I define that somewhat broadly, um, you know, certainly um, explosives and ordnance disposal, um, intel folks, com many communication folks working within the community. Um, and some of those folks, if they're from intelligence agencies, don't even have access to the VA because the VA isn't, isn't there for them. So what are we going to do as a, as a society to step up and provide the unique types of care for these people who have a done so much and now have some unique ways in which they're damaged or maybe damaged um it's probably not 100 percent so with that said one of the things that i encounter a lot is this attitude and i've certainly gotten it from people within the va i've gotten it from folks who were the founders of nico um, National Trumpet Center of Excellence. I've gotten this from even from some from some donors. Um, this attitude of "Hey, we need to have justice in the world. We need to treat all veterans equally. We shouldn't have special privileges for the people that were in special forces. We shouldn't treat them like Hollywood stars. Um, we should treat them no differently from other people. And I agree, we shouldn't treat them like Hollywood stars, but we should give them what they've earned and need." Well, to, to, I think it's, it's, it's outright ignorance to compare a person 
that served in uh, the, the motor pool without, with a basic indoctrination course and whatever versus a guy that was at JSOC that has done 27 deployments with Delta. There's no comparison. And, 100%. And, it, yep. and, it, and it's ignorance to imagine that there is a comparison. Even the guys themselves would not say there's a comparison. Right. Willfully say and, and And that's not even a judgment that one person is better or more worthy than the other. Nothing it's to, to do say, with This person did something unique and is damaged in a unique way and requires some unique services to help them with that. We should give everybody what they, we should give every veteran, every service member what they need healthy and have a high quality of life. Amen. Amen. So, and it's going to be different depending on who they are. So Chris, uh, you know, as, as we wrap up here, first off, um, you know, Bravo Zulu, this is a, a phenomenal, phenomenal paper. This is, I believe, and you and I have talked about this extensively for years this is the catalyst for something that's really going to, I think, bring a greater degree of focus. Uh, and I think it's also going to highlight the, 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 the need for more programs to be invented like Synchrony and like what we're a part of it at, and you're part of it at Methodist, man, in that very unique. Um, Houston about, Methodist. That's Houston. Houston Methodist Hospital yeah, in Houston. At, at Houston Methodist Hospital, right? And can you talk just real briefly about what Synchrony is um, and about uh, the Texas uh, availability uh, and just a little bit about what's going on with what, what you, where you guys are at and what's happening? Right, sure. So just real briefly, we have a program at Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas, and it's through the behavioral health program there. And this is a team of guys I've worked with for many years. In fact, the chair of the department, psychiatrist, who's also a neurologist, is, is a guy named Ben Weinstein. I've been working with him since, since probably 1997, 98. So we go way back. And we work together in three different settings now. Um, the number two is a, is a psychologist named Alok Madon. I've been working with him for 15 years, also in a variety of, of settings and, and contexts. So our, our program, which is pretty new and, and, and is underfunded at the moment, is intended to be a, essentially a concierge program that's an intensive outpatient, meaning it's not a hospital unit, it's not in, inpatient, but asks the, the operator to come spend 40, 50 hours a week, and we go through and do every assessment on each of these domains that you can think that we can think of that would be useful or relevant or helpful. And it's tailored individually. Some people don't need as much, some people need more. And we'll do that for one or two weeks with the goal, or three or four or six weeks with the goal of coming up with um, several things. One is diagnostic understanding in each of these areas. Yeah. Um, some, of it, some of it is about setting benchmark data, like neurocognitive functioning, endocrine function that we can look at six months, 12 months, two years, five years from now, and then developing a treatment plan and, and beginning to implement that treatment plan while they're there with us, but then having it as set up and designed so that when they go home to wherever home is, they can implement that treatment plan in their home community. 
and we we aspire to stay in touch with them. So we invite people to have, continue to have like video conferencing or phone calls with our with our, staff, our care providers that they have a connection to already. And we had one 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 op, former operator who who came back a second time a year later. And what what was cool, and maybe this is the hopeful message we want to end with, is he was his his intellectual functioning went up about. 10% wow. over the course of that year. His IQ actually went up significantly. Wow. Because he was doing better. He got better. He was functioning and feeling and, and doing much better. He was happy, you know, a year later. Now, this is expensive. Programs like this are expensive. The VA doesn't cover it. The VA doesn't provide it. We don't, we can't accept TRICARE or insurance because no insurance this type of care. Um, the goal of this care, and the goal of this care is not just to be comprehensive, but to be together so that it's not fragmented. It's not you go that way to get your blood tests and that way on the other side of town to see the sleep specialist. And, and you know, it's all right there. Everybody's at the table and literally everybody's at the table. So once a week, the treatment team gets together and talks about you and what's happened in this week with you and they do that with you as well as without you and and so the idea is to be comprehensive and thorough and, and eliminate that fragmentation which of, is also a massive deterrent from seeking help anyways it, it is and if, and for all of us but yeah especially for 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 this kind of um, syndrome now I, I will say one other thing i'll give a shout out to the texas veterans commission they gave us a grant uh, half a million dollars um, this past year. So we have some funding right now, small, we have some funding to treat a limited number of Texas residents. And, and we're, we're, we're probably uh, well into that, into that funding and that funding period. Um, we're gonna work with other folks to raise money this year and, and to develop our program and to learn from what other people are doing and share what we're doing. So. We're just getting started on this journey of trying to trying to be part of the solution. Well, where where can people go to find out a little bit more about it? And uh, I, you know, I, I certainly am going to post this uh, this uh, paper on my website that in a downloadable way. Uh, I'm also going to have uh, see if I can get a bunch of other friends to post this. Uh, it's really a substantial thing that will help people be able to diagnose a little bit more clearly and then seek out the help that can address these issues. But where, where right can on. people find a little bit more about uh, the Synchrony program? Well, one probably the, the easiest place is to go to the Methodist Hospital's website for the Synchrony program. Okay. And there's a, there's a I won't call it a fancy website. It's pretty simple, but it, it kind of lays out what what it is and who the who the clinicians in it are. Some of them, the list all of them, and and it, and then there's phone numbers and there's some links at the bottom that people can click on if they want to learn more or look into the possibility of donating a little bit of funding for this. One of the things that I like about the Methodist Hospital is. Um, not only are they the number one ranked hospital in the state of Texas, but they are also um, a pledge they've made to us is that any donations or any funding that we can raise will go 100% to providing the clinical care. So they don't, they don't take any kind of administrative overhead. So we're, we're early in that process. 
we've been blessed to have a few uh, really generous donors so far um, who have taken, helped us take care of some few guys. Well, but we're just getting started. I, I tell you what, you know, this is, uh, you know, and for all my listeners, I, you know, I've been involved in, in, in helping veterans for the past eight years. I've worked with a truckload of different charity veterans, charities and veterans outreach groups. And uh, this is the one that I have found that I have uh, the most confidence in. They're doing the best work. Uh, some of the people that have gone down there uh, are, are close friends of mine. Um, and, and it has saved their lives. There's no doubt in my mind that their lives were actually saved by the work that Chris and, and all of his uh, comrades are doing down there. So this is a, a fantastic program. Uh, if you're interested in knowing more, please go to the website, reach out. Uh, I'm sure there's a way to be able to uh, make donations to them. Uh, and maybe Chris, uh, what we can do is figure out how to get a better uh, website up and running here pretty soon. And uh, to where we can start <laughs> raising money uh, in a different way. As you know, I'm going to uh, hold the fundraiser in Florida here for y'all uh, in a couple months. Um, but if you want to also know more about it, you're interested in helping, uh, then go ahead and send me an email at, uh, at, uh, uh, at teamfroglogic.com and our contact thing. Just fill that out. I'd be happy to send you. Uh, we've got a nice a PowerPoint presentation on it that describes it. I'll be able to send you a copy of this, uh, this, uh, um, this paper if you'd like. That's uh, contact me at teamfroglogic.com. All right, my man. Hey, uh, I, this was uh, exactly what I think people needed to hear. They needed to understand what operator syndrome is, and, uh, and thank you and so much uh, for for putting this out brother and doing what you're doing, man. Oh, well, thank you, my brother, for having me on and helping me. I mean, we, this is, we've really been kind of partners in this, you and me and a bunch of other people whose names are not listed on this paper. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of us have, a lot of folks have contributed to this, to this, to this work. So thank you. Maybe next time we'll have you on and we'll actually go through some of the, uh, you know, break down a couple of these and actually talk about treatment. And what, what are yeah, some, some, some healthy components of treatment? What's available out there? What have you guys seen that work? So if they can't get to Methodist with you guys to the synchrony program, then at least they could probably search out and find some, from some places to get the help too. Yep. All right, my brother. God bless you, man. Love you. Talk soon. Love you too, man. Yep. <laughs>